knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Israel has been on a journey that started in Egypt, and as this journey continues, God is leading them, and each place that they've gone, they've encountered a problem, they respond with complaining, God deals with their problem in typically a miraculous way, and uh, at the beginning of chapter 17 last week, we came to uh, a place called Rephidim, and and there they faced a, a big problem. Uh, they didn't have any water, and they were complaining to Moses, complaining to God. Uh, God provides water in a miraculous way as Moses strike this rock with his rod, and water flows out in order to quench the thirst of the Israelites. And, um, you know, we would think that they would start to be learning now that they can trust God, that He's there to provide for them. But even as they're in this same place, typically once the problem has been resolved, that place is still a place where things are good until they move on. But uh, this is one of those stops where they're still in Rephidim, and they're now going to face a second problem. And within this second problem, as with all the other ones, there's lessons to be learned. Uh, and I think a real important lesson uh, for us to learn and apply to our lives tonight. And so let's see what this new problem is that Israel faces in the second half of Exodus 17, starting in verse 8. It says this, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. So here's the new problem that they face. They've gone from not having any water to God providing that to now this army from Amalek coming and fighting with the Israelites. Now, Amalek is a descendant from Esau. Uh, Esau's grandson, Amalek, is the one that's connected here. And so you have um, Jacob, remember, whose name was changed to Israel, his brother Esau. He has a son who has a son named Amalek. So there's a, a family connection. There's, you know, um, Israel and, and the Amalekites, you know, they, they have this uh, relation to one another. But there's a couple of important things that we're told in the book of De- Deuteronomy that shines some light on this because Exodus says, hey, they just fought with Israel and that's very vague. But Deuteronomy tells us how they did it. Uh, and it's very important to note that uh, as we come into um, what we're going to look at tonight. So Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 and 18 says this, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. 
So there's a couple things I want us to note here about how the Amalekites attacked the Israelites. And the first thing I think that's important to note is the attack was unprovoked. You know, this was not something that Israel was looking for. This is not something that Israel, they did something, you know, to provoke the uh, Amalekites and then war transpired because of it. This was all initiated by the Amalekites on to the Israelites. The second thing that is important to note is this attack by the Amalekites. The method that was used was one that was quite despicable and you could say also cowardly. Notice what Deuteronomy tells us, how uh, Amalek met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary and you did not fear God. So picture this, you have these millions of Israelites and they're going from place to place. Those who are more fit, those who are younger, those who are easy to travel, they're going to be towards the front and they're going to be doing the journey and they're going to be making it easier. But those who are more weary, those are probably typically older, maybe women, children, you know, it's just harder for them to make the journey. They're going to be at the back. You know, okay, well, we're moving to another place. Let's get moving. And they're going slow. It's harder for them. They're weaker. And notice, those are the people that the Amalekites come and fight. This wasn't some typical war when you think of fighting. you got one army and its soldiers battling another army and its soldiers. You have soldiers from the Amalekites targeting most likely women, children, and the elderly, those who are weak and weary at the back of Israel's entourage, and they come and they kill them. Uh, and this is the way in which they attack. They attack the helpless people who can't fight back. And so there's this despicable way, even in that time, you know, that would have been seen by the pagan world as something despicable and cowardly. You know, that, that's not the way that you have battle. You don't pick on women and children and elderly. Uh, you go and fight soldiers with your soldiers if you're going to go to battle with a nation. But this is the way that the Amalekites do it, this brutal attack against the most weak and innocent of the Israelites. Now, we're also told there in Deuteronomy, they didn't fear God. And I think that's such an important statement because we've seen through Exodus what happens when you don't fear God. We had another you know, nation that didn't fear God, the nation of Egypt. When God sends Moses and says to Pharaoh, let my people go, <laughs> who is this God? Why should I listen to him? I have no fear of God. That was the starting point for Pharaoh. That was the starting point for the Egyptians. It didn't last long. Ten plagues later, and the parting of the Red Sea to wipe out their whole army and Pharaoh himself, there was now a fear of God. They went from no fear of God to a recognition of who he is, the power he has, to a great fear of God. But here's the Amalekites. They're in that place that the Egyptians were. No fear of God. But just like the Egyptians, they're going to start to learn who they're up against and have a very important fear that they should have had to begin with. Because I'm sure they heard the stories. I'm sure this is spread already of what God did in Egypt, but yet they're coming and they're attacking the Israelites in this very despicable and cowardly way. Now, as we look at this battle, we're going to see something that enables the Israelites to be victorious. And that's really the main thing that I want us to focus on tonight as we look at this, because I think it's a great lesson for them, but also a great lesson for us. You know, something interesting to note throughout the Bible, when you look at certain groups, you know, they're kind of a picture of something. And the Amalekites, as you look through the Word of God, they're a picture of the flesh, our battle with our sinful flesh. 
You know, each one of us battles the desires of our flesh, the sinful nature that we have. Each and every day, there's that battle of whether we'll give in to the temptation of our flesh, whether we'll resist those things. We struggle with that. Each one of us has that battle. And oftentimes, we lose this battle by giving in to the sinful desires of our flesh. And something that we often long for, hopefully we long for, hopefully we desire is, I want to be victorious. I want to have more victory over the flesh than I do now. I want to see victory in my life over this temptation and over that different thing. And so that's something that oftentimes as Christians we get to that place. Well, the thing that enables the Israelites to be victorious over the Amalekites is something that enables us to be victorious over our own flesh, our own sinful desires. And so as we look at this battle between the Amalekites and the Israelites, you know, we're going to see a picture of the battle that we have against our own fleshly desires and the victory that they win is a victory that we can win if we will do what the Israelites do as well. And so I want you to take from this tonight that there is a very important thing that you and I can do to help us in this battle, to help us get victory, especially if we've been struggling with having victory over our flesh. So let's see what Moses, or God has Moses to do, verses 9 and 10. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Ur went up to the top of the hill. So after the Amalekites have done this despicable attack against the Israelites, coming against their weakest, their women, their children, their elderly, God now is motivating and moving Moses, and Moses comes to Joshua with a command. Now, if you read through the Bible, you're familiar with Joshua. There's a whole book about him leading the nation of Israel. He's going to take over after Moses dies. But it's interesting. This is the first, you know, reference. This is the first time that we see him, you know, being spoken of here in scripture. And the thing I love about Joshua, just like we saw with Joseph, is there's so much of Joshua's life that's a picture of Jesus. It really even starts with his name. You know, what we need to realize is that when Mary and Joseph named their baby, they did not name their baby Jesus. They named their baby Joshua, or probably more accurately, Yeshua, but they named him a Hebrew name. Jesus is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Joshua. They're the same name. There's just a different translation uh, into a different language. And so Joshua would have been Jesus's name. We just refer to it because it's been translated into the Greek. But so they both share the same name. Uh, and it's interesting, even if you look into the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, if you read through it and come to this name right here, it's not translated Joshua, it's translated Jesus. Uh, and so we have this wonderful picture. So much of Joshua's life is just a great picture of Jesus. But Adam Clark, who's a, a Greek scholar, he wrote this about Joshua. In the Septuagint, he is called Jesus. The name signifies Savior. And he's allowed to have been a very expressive type of our blessed Lord. He fought with and conquered the enemies of his people, brought them into the promised land, and divided it to them by lot. The parallel between him and the Savior of the world is too evident to require pointing out. So as we look at Joshua more and more, we're just going to see lots of parallels, lots of pictures of his life that kind of points to Jesus' life, just like we saw so much of that with Joseph 
as well. But here we have Moses now calling upon Joshua, giving him a command. And notice the command that he gives him. Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Now, this is an interesting command because I want you to kind of think about the situation here that the Israelites have been in. They've been slaves for over 400 years. And in that time, guess what they've never been trained to do? Be soldiers. That actually would go completely against what the Egyptians feared. Remember, the reason that Israel became slaves to begin with was because Pharaoh feared, oh my goodness, if you guys were to be here and another army came and attacked us and you joined with them, then you could conquer us as Egyptians. And so they thought, you know what, we're never going to train you as soldiers. We're afraid that you will actually conquer us. And that's why I went to a greater extreme. It's like, let's kill all the baby boys to make it even less likely that they would ever rise up against us. So you have all these men who are of the fighting age, but guess what? They've never been trained to fight. All they've done is manual labor. They've never probably even held a sword. They don't know how to fight. They don't know how to wield a sword. They don't know what they're doing. They don't have any kind of strategy. But now they got to fight. they got to have this battle. And so God tells, Moses tells uh, uh, Joshua, all right, you know what? You got to go choose some men. Choose some men because we're going to go fight the Amalekites. Now, I think this is interesting when you kind of look at these two different armies. So obviously you've got the trained army of the Amalekites. We've already noted it's quite brutal. And they go and they attack women and children and the elderly. And then you kind of have this ragtag group that's just being chosen this day, never been in a battle in their life, don't have a clue of what they're doing. And these are the two that are coming against one another. And if you were to be a betting person, I'm sure you would probably put all of your money on the Amalekites winning this battle. It's like there is no way these slaves from Egypt are ever going to win a battle against an army that is trained like the Amalekites. But I think something that is important to note as we look at this battle, something that we're going to see here, is there's actually two battles going on here. The battle that Joshua is leading against the Amalekites, and then there's another battle that we're going to see that Moses is leading as well. Notice that Moses tells Joshua, choose some men, go and fight the Amalekites, but Moses doesn't join the battle. Moses doesn't get involved in the physical fight there against the Amalekites. He does something different. We're told that he goes to the top of the hill, the hill that would overlook this valley that they're going to be fighting in, and he takes the rod of God that he's been doing so many miracles with, and then he journeys up to the top of this hill, and we have two people joining him, his brother Aaron and her, who most people believe was his brother in law. So let's see what happens as these three men, they come up on this hill, verses 11 through 13. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him and sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So Moses, Aaron, and Hur, they go up to the top of this mountain. They're now able to see the two armies that are coming together for battle. And we're told something very interesting. 
As Moses holds up his hands, notice what happens. The Israelites prevail. The unlikely takes place. This group of soldiers who aren't trained are beating soldiers who are. But then as Moses lays his hands down, the Amalekites are starting to prevail. And so you kind of read this and think, well, what's going on here? What does that have to do with anything? Why would Moses' hands being up help the Israelites win? And why would his hands being down help the Amalekites win? You know, what's taking place here? Uh, and, you know, this is just kind of a, an interesting thing. Winning, losing. Winning, losing. You know, what, what's happening with this? So the key here to whether or not Israel prevails is connected with what Moses is doing up on this hill. Now, most commentators believe that this is referring to Moses being in prayer for the Israelites. And this is something that's interesting when you look not only at the nation of Israel, but even in the Middle East, this posture of prayer, because you know, we have our own posture of prayer. I mean, if you saw me on my knees, you know, my head bowed, my hands folded, my eyes closed, you know, if that's all you saw, you would assume something. He's praying. Why? Because that's the posture of prayer that's so typical in the Western world. You know, we close our eyes, we bow our heads, often we get on our knees, we fold our hands. But back in this time, the posture of prayer was not that. The posture of prayer was raising your hands to the heavens, looking up and, and praying to God. And so if someone were to be like this back then, they would assume the same thing if I was like this today. Here's someone who is praying. And so most commentators believe that what Moses is doing there on that mountain or that hill is he's praying. He's in prayer. His hands are raised to prayer in God for victory in the battle. And when he's getting weary, all right, I got to take a break. This praying's hard. But when I take a break, guess what happens? The Amalekites start winning. Okay, all right, Lord, let me start praying again for the Israelites. And they start prevailing again. And then it's, it's tiring. It's a long day. I put my hands back down. I stop praying. I take a break. And then the Amalekites start winning the battle. Now, we see this throughout Scripture of this reality of lifting up your hands as a posture of prayer. Psalm 28.2 says, Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift my hands towards your holy sanctuary. We also see this in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2.8. I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. And so we have this connection with this prayer and this posture of prayer of lifting your hands that way. Uh, and so the important thing to note is that the thing that enabled these Israelites who are fighting this battle to be victorious was what Moses is doing here on this hill. As he prays, they're being victorious. As he stops praying, they're losing the battle. It's all really based on what's happening. And that's why I say there's two battles taking place. There's the physical battle there you know, in the valley between the Israelites and the Amalekites with swords drawn, fighting that physical battle. But then there's another battle. There's a spiritual battle taking place on the hill right above where Moses is fighting that spiritual battle in prayer. And it's the spiritual battle that's the most important because it's a spiritual battle that's ultimately enabling the physical battle to be victorious. The battle was won by the Israelites because of prayer. They didn't win because they were great soldiers. <laughs> we know that wasn't the case. We didn't, they didn't win because you know, they had some wonderful strategy of how to do battle. They'd never been battled before. 
They won because Moses prayed. And I think the wonderful news about that is that physical limitations didn't stop them from being victorious. We know that Israel is full of fear. You know, we're not told anything about this situation, which is kind of interesting. We're not told they complain. We're not told they're like, oh my goodness, we're all going to die like they did with the Egyptians. But you know, I'm sure there were many who are like, man, we don't know what we're doing. How are we going to defeat this army? You know, what's going to happen? Yet their limitations, the fact that they haven't been trained, the fact that they don't know how to fight properly, especially a trained army, none of that was something that hindered them or kept them from victory. Why? Because there was a more significant battle being fought in prayer that enabled them to overcome all of their physical limitations. And the same is true for us. When it comes to the physical battle that we have with our flesh, when it comes to the temptations that we struggle with, the desires that are sinful that often, you know, that we want to do, the great news is that even though we have certain temptations, certain weaknesses, certain physical limitations, we think, well, if, if I have that, I'll never be victorious. Well, no, that's not the case. I can have weaknesses. I can have physical limitations just like the Israelites did, but yet I can find victory because it's not about the physical side of it. That's not what ultimately wins me the battle. If I fight the spiritual battle in prayer, then I can be victorious in the physical battle that I might struggle with, in the physical battle that I might be weak in, in the physical battle that I might have temptations that I've often given into, in the physical battle where you know I just have certain desires that I haven't been able to overcome. If I will fight that battle in prayer, I can find victory even though physically I have limitations that I haven't been able to overcome for a long time. You know, you've probably discovered as I have when you try to fight only in the physical, oh, I'm just going to muster up enough strength today. You know what? Yeah, there's this thing that I keep being tempted in doing, and, and but today I'm not going to, today I'm just going to put my foot down. Today I'm going to, you know, just, I'm going to figure out a way just to say no. It just doesn't work. You know, when we're constantly trying to fight only in the physical, that's it. And we deny the spiritual battle. We don't engage in that part of it. And we think, I'm just going to, with my own strength, somehow overcome all the bombardment of temptations that come my way. You've probably discovered as I have. You fail. It doesn't work. You're prone to lose those battles because we're physically weak. But you know what? The great thing is, if we'll fight the battle spiritually in prayer, if we won't just fight it physically, we can have victory. We can overcome these things. So something very important we need to understand is that prayer is an essential element if you want to get victory over your flesh. But here's the other side of the coin. If you neglect the spiritual battle, don't expect to have victory in the physical. If you're not going to pray, if you're going to neglect where the real fight is, as even Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 ultimately tells us, you know, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. It's principalities, powers. You know, this is where the real battle is. It's a spiritual battle, and we got to fight it in prayer. If we neglect that battle, don't think that you're going to be victorious in the physical. Because this is where it really, this is where victory is won or is lost. David Guzik wrote this. This amazing passage shows us that life or death for Israel depended on the prayers of one man. 
Moses prayed as we should pray with passion, believing that life and death, perhaps eternally, depended on prayer. You know, here's the thing that I think so often we miss, and I think this story is a great one because you can see clearly with this story, the stakes are high. You know, it's not like Moses would be up there and like, oh, we're winning. Oh, we're losing. Oh, this is fine. Let's see what happens. I mean, he realizes when my hands are down, when my prayers are stopped, my people are dying. You know, this isn't some simple like, oh, this game here. He recognizes we're losing and losing in a battle means people are getting heads chopped off. People are getting stabbed. People are dying. And so he recognizes, you know, this is a huge thing. The stakes are high. I got to keep praying. I want victory for my people. But I think so often we, we miss the fact that the stakes are so high for us. You know, giving in the flesh, we buy into the lie that the enemy brings of, oh, it's only going to impact you. You're not going to hurt anybody else by doing this. You know, uh, well, and it's all a lie. It definitely hurts us far more than we believe. It also hurts our family. It also hurts our friends. It hurts so many people. And for some, it hurts our witness. And it could be an eternal thing that we miss out on reaching someone because of giving in to the flesh. And so we need to realize the stakes are high. And we got to fight the battle where the victory truly can be won in prayer. Now, one of the problems that we face, and I'm sure any of you who have tried to pray on a regular basis for anything recognize it's not easy. Yeah, it kind of sounds that way, and you hear it preached, and you hear, you know, passages of scripture like pray without ceasing, and you start to think to yourself, how is that even feasible? Yeah, I mean, prayer's hard when you start getting engaged in it. I think it's interesting. We're going to see Moses is the one that we're told is getting weary. He's not the one swinging a sword. He's not the one battling against trained soldiers. You would think if anybody's getting weary, it's the Israelites, it's Joshua. We're not told at all that they're weary, but we're told that he is. Why? Prayer drains you. Prayer can be difficult. And this is why... What we see next is so important. So Moses is up there. He, he's lifting his hands. He's praying for the people of Israel. He's getting drained. It's difficult. He's having struggles holding his hands up, continuing in prayer. And notice what we're told happens in verse 12. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Moses is there and he just can't lift his hands anymore. He's just drained and tired. I can't continue in this. But notice he didn't go up on that hill alone. His brother Aaron is with them. His brother-in-law Hur is with them. And they recognize, they see what's happening. When Moses doesn't pray, the battle is being lost. We need to help him. And so they get this stone and they, they put it under him so he can sit on it. Oh, that's so much better. Thanks, guys. But man, my hands, they're still, they're, it's, it's, it's painful. I can't hold them up. My, my arms are hurting. Hey, we're here for you. Aaron gets on one side, grabs this arm. Ur gets on this side, grabs this arm. And they hold up his arms for him and enable him to continue to have the strength to pray and to intercede. And we're told that they do that until the going down of the sun. 
The whole day goes on, and here's two guys helping Moses continue to intercede for the Israelites. Why? So that they can be victorious in this battle. But you know what? He couldn't do it alone. He couldn't win the battle alone. He needed others to come by, be on his side, strengthen him in his prayer. And I think this is a great lesson for us because it's so true for you and I. We need other people to be praying for us. We need other people to be with us, to recognize that, hey, we need strength here. This is a hard thing. Fighting the spiritual battle is difficult. And, you know, God didn't design us to do it on our own. We have the body of Christ. We have other believers that we need other people to come alongside and to be there with us and to fight with us and to give strength to us and to pray for us. You know, I would encourage you to find people like Aaron and her in your life. Find a couple people that you know will pray for you, that you know will be there for you, that you know you could call up no matter what you're going through, no matter what you've done sinfully, and you could just say, you know what, I need prayer right now. I've blown it big time, I need prayer. Or I'm struggling with us, I need prayer. I need you to be there for me. I need you to lift me up right now. I need you to encourage me because I'm struggling and praying and I need someone to help strengthen me. I need someone to encourage me. I need someone to be with me to help me continue on with what I need to do spiritually. I'd also encourage you, be like Aaron and her for someone else. As much as it's important to say, you know what, I need to find people who are willing to pray for me, people who will do that for me, people who will take time out of their life to invest in my life spiritually and pray for me, I would encourage you, be that person for someone else. Recognize, you know, there's plenty of people in the body of Christ that are in need of an Aaron or a her to come alongside of them and to strengthen them and to encourage them and to pray for them. And oftentimes, sadly, we're just more concerned about our own needs, our own issues, our own problems, where it's like, you know what, I'm happy for you to pray for me, but don't expect me to do it for you. I'm happy for you to strengthen me, but don't expect me to do it for you, as opposed to, hey, let's do this for each other. Yeah, there's times where I'm in great need of that, but I also want to be there for you when you're struggling, when you're in need, when you need prayer from me. You know, the more I've been involved in ministry, the more I have personally come to realize how desperate I am in need of others to pray for me. And I would love if you want to say, hey, I want to be a her or or an Aaron for me. I need that. I want that prayer. I ask for that prayer. It's important. You know, a pastor friend of mine posted on Facebook about a week ago, if you want a better pastor, pray for the one you have. I thought, you know, that's a, you know, so often it's like, oh, I don't like my pastor enough, I'll go find a new one. But I think that fits with so many relationships. If you want a better spouse, pray for the one you have. If you want better kids, pray for the one you have. You want better friends, pray for the ones you have. We're typically like, well, I'm just going to move on to someone else as opposed to, hey, if they're struggling, if their actions are messed up, if there's issues going on, they need prayer. They need someone to come alongside. They need encouragement. They need strength. And let's be those that say, hey, I'm going to be like Aaron. I'm going to be like her. And I'm going to come alongside. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to help you so that you can grow, so that you can be used by God in greater ways. You know, the importance, the power of prayer, you know, I think it's something that, it's just a real step of maturity that takes time to learn. 
I know in my early Christian life, I was much more like, just let me physically go out and fight. You know, let me physically do something. You know, I'll battle my own flesh or I'll do something. I was very much just like, I just want to physically do it on a prayer. You know, I'll leave that to someone else. I didn't see the power or the importance or that that's really where the battle was won and lost. Yeah, I just wanted to get out there and, and physically fight. And I think as you mature in the Lord, you start to realize, you know what? All that physical efforts that I put so much into trying in my own strength to overcome things and I realized it really wasn't that effective. Man, the real battle that I should have been fighting for a lot longer was this one in prayer. But you know what? You get to a point where you start to mature in the Lord. And I think it's interesting we see this with Moses. Forty years before this event, Moses, he's 40 years old. He feels like, you know what? The only way to win the battle that I have is to physically kill another Egyptian. And so that's what he does. I'm going to kill this Egyptian and God's going to use me to deliver the nation of Israel and he's got it all planned out and here's how I'm going to do it. And as we know, it doesn't work out well for him. He doesn't deliver anyone. Instead, he runs for his life into the wilderness. But you know what? 40 years have transpired. Now he's faced with another opportunity to fight. And he can get out there, give me some of those Amalekites. I'll kill him like I did with that Egyptian 40 years ago. But he's not even in the physical battle. He recognizes, you know what? I am going to be so much more effective in fighting the spiritual battle. I'm going to get up on this hill and I'm going to pray. I'm going to be part of what God's ultimately going to do to help the nation of Israel win the battle. And he grew spiritually. He understood where the battle really needs to be fought. So we're told that Joshua defeated the Amalekites and his people with the edge of the sword. Now there's something else that I want us to note here because as we emphasize this aspect of prayer and the spiritual battle and and that's truly where victory is won or lost, we can lose sight of something else that I don't want us to lose sight of is that even though the battle was won in prayer, it still had to be physically fought. Moses' prayer did not eliminate what Joshua or the Israelite army had to do. It wasn't like they were down there and they look up and they see Moses' hand raised and they're like, "Woo, he's praying, put down your swords, guys, let's take a break. Nothing's going to happen to us. Moses is praying, everything's great. That's not how it worked at all. As Moses prayed, they're fighting, but they're winning. Yeah, instead of someone hacking my arm off, I'm able to kill them. I'm in this battle and I'm fighting and as the prayer's going out, I'm putting in all this effort and work. The prayer is what enables me to be victorious, but it does not enable me to just walk away and say, well, I don't have to do anything now. And I think there's an interesting correlation here in connection with the reality that Joshua and the army had to fight and they didn't get you know away from that. Moses' prayer worked side by side with their physical fighting the battle. And I think sometimes we make the mistake as Christians thinking that everything is just going to be fine if all we do is pray. I just got to pray and that's it. And then everything's going to work out. I don't need to put any action, any effort. If I just pray, that's all that's necessary because it's all in prayer. And that's an extreme that goes farther than what Scripture teaches. This battle wasn't going to be won with just Moses standing on the hilltop praying. If Joshua and the Israelites weren't willing to fight down on the valley, with those two coming together, the prayer and the fighting, it wasn't going to happen. 
It required both prayer and action working together for the victory to take place. You know, this is something that I think, you know, we can be prone, as I said, uh, younger in my younger Christian life to just be focused on more, I guess, action. I just want to physically in my own strength do stuff and neglect the spiritual side, which actually is more important, this prayer side. But sometimes we can think, well, it's only this. And so I'm going to totally neglect that aspect of it and just pray. When the reality is there's the balance in the middle. There's prayer connected with action and those two together ultimately is what enables me to find victory. We shouldn't just pray and then do nothing. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, Prayer is a downright mockery if it does not lead us into the practical use of means likely to promote the ends for which we pray. Let me give you an example. If you're praying and saying, oh, I am so desperate for a job. Lord, please provide me this job. And maybe you're even more specific of the type of job you're looking for, whatever. You pray that prayer and you just sit in your house. You don't put in a job application. You don't even look up what job availability there is. You do absolutely nothing. You're waiting for God to miraculously move on some employer to just call you out of the blue and say, the job's yours. But sometimes that's how we are. It's like, all I gotta do is pray. Well, no, if you want a job, yeah, you should pray. And now you gotta go do some work. You're gonna have to fill out some applications. You're gonna have to go meet some people. You're gonna have to go through some interviews. You're gonna have to do some work in order to actually get the job. Oh, Lord, I, I want boldness to preach the gospel to the lost. But I'm just gonna sit in my house, and maybe invite some Christian friends over, but I'm never going to actually go and talk with a lost person. Well, it defeats the purpose. If you really are honest about that prayer, guess what? You got to put action to that, Lord. And now, like we did, you know, a little bit ago, we're, we're going to go door to door and we're going to talk with people who don't know Jesus. And, and that's where it's like, I'm asking for boldness. I'm afraid of this. I don't like this. I'm uncomfortable, but yet I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to put action to this and trust that you're now going to answer the prayer that I prayed. I think A.J. Gordon shares a good balanced view of what prayer should be like. He says this, You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you can never do more than pray until you have prayed. Why I like this is because it highlights what's most essential. Prayer is the most essential thing. If you're trying to do stuff without praying, you're just wasting your time. It's not going to work. There's not going to be the power that's necessary to win, to be victorious. And so if you're doing it all without praying, then you've totally missed it. You need to start with prayer, but you also need to recognize that after you pray, you need to get out there and put some action to it. Now, after the victory over the Amalekites, God tells Moses to do something. Notice what he says in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and reaccount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of the Amalekites from under heaven. So after this victory, this battle's over and the Israelites won, the Amalekites have lost, God tells Moses to do something. He says, I want you to write something down for two reasons. One, for a memorial and so you, that you recount this in the hearing of Joshua, the Israelites. I, I want you guys to write it down to remember this. 
Remember this moment when you defeated the Amalekites, but I also I want you to know that there's more to it, that this isn't the only battle, that, that there's going to be more to this. He says, write this down. I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. That's what I want you guys to remember. Yeah, you won this initial battle, but the Amalekites aren't all dead. You won this initial battle, but you're going to fight them again. But I want you to know this. I am going to utterly blot them out. What does that mean? Pretty much what it sounds like. I am going to kill every single Amalekite on the face of the earth. They're all going to be dead. That's coming in the future. There is a judgment that is extreme that I am bringing upon the Amalekites. And I want you to write it down. I want you to know it. As the future comes and they attack as battles arise and they come against you, I want you to be able to come back and I want you to be able to read this reality. Remember when I won that victory for you and I told you, I am going to take care of this group of people. I am going to bring my judgment upon them. And they are very deserving of it. And this is one of those questions where it's like, man, that's pretty extreme, God. Remember this group. Remember what they did. This is a group that in their cowardly, horrible way comes and kills women and children and elderly, they pick on the weak of Israel, and they're the first ones who come against the Israelites in this way. The first army as this journey out of Egypt happens. There'll be many more battles, but they're the ones with the unfortunate reality of starting a fight and ultimately God going to finish it and take care of them. Well, the section ends with Moses responding to this victory that God gave them in verses 15 and 16. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Notice now, God says, I want you to remember something that I'm going to do. Uh, that in the future, I'm going to ultimately deal with Amalek. We won this battle but the war's not done. You're going to have many more battles with these guys, but I'm going to ultimately take care of them. That's a promise that I want you guys to remember. And now Moses does something similar. Well, I want to do something as a remembrance of what God has done. And so he builds an altar and he calls the name of this altar, the Lord is my banner. The idea behind the Lord is my banner is that God is the one that brought the victory. And I, I'm lifting the banner. The banner is the mindset that you would think of today. You're holding something up that's declaring a message. We see banners all the time. We see people waving the little flag banners when we come to a, a stoplight. Well, what is it doing? It's wanting to declare something. Moses' declaration is ultimately, I want to point to Jesus or to God ultimately who had the victory in this battle. He's the banner. He's the one who should be lifted high. He's the one that ultimately, as I build this altar, I want people to look at the altar to remember what God did for us. How He won the victory for us. The Lord swore He will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. You know, I think it's interesting that Moses knows God's telling us the fight's not over. But He's also telling us He's going to continue to give us victory. He gave us victory here. He's telling us from generation to generation the Amalekites are going to keep causing problems. But you know what? He's going to be the one 
that's there to protect us. He's going to be the one that's always there when the fight comes to us. And so my response is to make this memorial, this altar for people to look at. The Lord is my banner. A reminder of what God did, not only to protect them now, but that He's going to, He has a promise to continue to do that in the future. I think this is an important thing for us to remember that God continually battles for us. He continually is there to protect us and be there for us in the midst of what we go through, especially in our battle with the flesh. So we, like Moses, can say, the Lord is my banner. He is the one that makes victory possible. He is the one who is the source of the power that I have to have in order to overcome my flesh, in order to resist temptation. I think it's interesting. I'm sure Moses knew that his prayer was important. He saw it. We're winning. We're losing. We're winning. We're losing. He, he knew it was important, but he also knew he wasn't the one who brought the victory. And I'm sure there were people who looked down and said, Oh, Moses, thank you for praying for us. You brought the victory to us. No, I didn't. I prayed to the one who brought victory. I didn't bring the victory. And notice this in Moses is our banner. Oh, Joshua, you were a great commander. I can't believe it. We've never fought before, but you did such a great job. And I saw you kill 10 people or whatever it was. Oh, Joshua's our banner or the Israelites are our banner. Notice that none of those people are lifted up and highlighted because they recognize they're not the ones who brought the victory. The Lord is the only one who deserves the banner. He's the one who should be lifted up because he's the one who's done the work. So the battle with Amalek isn't over. I think it's interesting as you look through Israel's history, you see that what God says is very true. Generation after generation, they're fighting the Amalekites. And there comes a point in time when God, in the promise that He shared here, I'm going to utterly blot them out, He comes to a point where it's like, now's the time. And the king that is there at that time is King Saul. And he tells King Saul, I want you to kill them all. All the Amalekites, this is my command to you, wipe them out. Like I said all the way back many years ago, I always had this plan. Well, now is going to be the fruition of that plan. But guess what? Saul doesn't do it. Saul is not obedient to what God tells him to do. He ultimately loses the kingdom. He loses his right to be king. God takes it away, gives it to David because of this one step of disobedience. The thing that God said hundreds of years before, I am ultimately going to do this. Now, Saul, I've written this down. I've warned you because there's going to be the day that would come where I was going to ask of you to be a part of me bringing my judgment upon this group of people, but yet you disobeyed me. And I think it's interesting that they allowed Amalek, the Amalekites, to survive. And the sad reality is they continued to be this thorn in the flesh of the nation of Israel, because they wouldn't deal with them like God wanted them to. And there's a famous person that maybe you don't even know, he's related to the Amalekites. Someone who later on after Saul wanted to wipe out every single Jew in the world. His name was Haman from the story of Esther. He's an Amalekite. He survived because Saul did not do what God said, and he almost was successful in wiping out the nation of Israel. But the thing that I think is an interesting picture and connection here 
is that battle that we constantly have with our flesh. We're struggling with it. And in this life, it's always going to be there. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 tells us this. I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. That's all of us. That's the struggle. We got a spirit inside of us who's saying, hey, I want you to do what's godly. And then we have the flesh inside of us who says, why don't you do what's sinful? And we have this battle. And so often we do the things that we know are wrong. We do the things that we, we, the spirit inside of us wishes we wouldn't. We give into temptations that we shouldn't. As Jesus told the disciples, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. And that's our problem. We got a weak flesh that so often gives into temptation. And so this battle that we face, just like the Amalekites, were always that thorn in Israel, battling with Israel, causing problems for Israel. Our flesh is that for us. Every day, we got to deal with it. Every day, it's an issue for us. But here's the good news. We can be victorious. Not because we're so tough, Not because we're so physically strong. Not because we're just going to say, today I'm just not going to fall for that temptation. Today I'm just going to overcome it. No, because we realize there is a battle beyond this one. And in this battle, the spiritual battle, is where I truly find victory or defeat if I neglect it. So the main lesson to take from this battle against the Amalekites is first we just need to be like Moses. we got to fight the battle in prayer. We gotta recognize how vital that is if we're gonna be victorious. We also need to be like Aaron and her and support, support others who are praying and pray for others. And we need to be like Joshua and put into action those prayers. And so if you're thinking of praying and prayer and the importance of prayer, which is really kind of the main emphasis of what I'm sharing tonight, there's really three vital things to kind of remember. First, Fight your battles in prayer. Don't just fight the physical side of it. Fight the spiritual side of it. Recognize that's really where the battle's fought in prayer. Second, support others in prayer. You're doing well one day. I mean, life's good. I've overcome this. Things are going well. I can guarantee you got a brother or sister in the Lord who's not doing well. You got a brother and sister in the Lord who's being defeated. You got a brother or sister in the Lord who's going through hardships, going through trials, going through struggles. They need someone to be there to pray for them, support them. And third, put action to your prayers. Don't just say, yeah, I'm just going to pray and then do nothing. Recognize they go hand in hand. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to step out and I'm going to put myself out there for the Lord to answer those prayers in my life. I'm going to put action to the things that I'm praying about. And the great news that we see from this story is when we do these three things, victory is possible. And so if you've been, you know, buying into the lie of the enemy of you're never ever going to overcome this temptation. Look at how many times you've already failed. You continue to fail. You can never be victorious in this. You can never overcome this. That's not true. If we'll fight the battle where it's supposed to be fought in prayer. Get other people to be praying for us as well. Find godly brothers and sisters in the Lord that you can be honest with and open up to and share your issues and your struggles and have them praying for you. And then put into practice, put into action 
what you're praying about. Watch how the Lord can bring victory to you. Even though, just like the Israelites, you got physical limitations, physical struggles, things that you've failed in many times, it doesn't negate the reality that God can now bring victory when you fight the battle the way it's supposed to be fought. Any thoughts on what we looked at tonight?